0: In the name of our Lord Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a foregone conclusion that you have committed idolatry. I have too. You might think that's a little bit too harsh. I haven't built a statue that I pray to. Well, no, maybe not, but that's not what makes idolatry. The people of Israel didn't become idolaters when they bowed down to the golden calf. They were already idolaters in their heart long before. And that is, they lacked faith. Moses writes for us the shocking reason that Israel committed this sin, and the people admitted it themselves, because this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So as a result of the delay, as a result of not presently seeing the miracles of God performed, as a result of having to wait with nothing but the rocks and the desert to look at, the people lost their faith. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Faith is being sure about what we hope for, being convinced about things we do not see. And because they didn't see, the people of Israel stopped believing. This text, therefore, shows us the twin reality that we trust our senses more than we trust God, and yet that God still works whatever our senses believe so that he can forgive us. So we consider how the true God is different from our idols. And under this heading come two points. First, that he works while we wait. And second, that he forgives for the sake of our intercessor. So first, God is different from our idols in that he works while we wait. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. For almost a month and a half, the people had to wait, twiddling their thumbs at the mountain's base. And of course, he recognized that number, 40. 40. We're in the middle of Lent, a 40-day season. Doubtless that reflects on the period of time that Jesus spent in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. And we also are waiting in this season for the coming of the high festival of Easter. In all of the church's penitential seasons, we might be tempted to jump the gun. After all, the world around us is already putting up pictures of bunnies and eggs. Similarly, during Advent, the world is already singing Christmas hymns. Despite repeated warnings, Israel jumped the gun. What was the first commandment? You shall have no other gods beside me. And to clarify, God continued, you shall not make any carved image for yourself or a likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or be subservient to them. And then just a little while later, God told Moses to tell the people, you shall not make gods of silver or gods of gold and place them beside me. You shall not make them for yourselves. Um, Is God starting to sound like a parent who knows exactly what sort of mischief his children are going to get into? Specifically warning them against those things? It's clearer when you know that these things were reported by Moses before he entered into the middle of the cloud and climbed up onto the mountain to be on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Was this command, repeated three times, so difficult to keep? During those 40 days and 40 nights, Moses learned from God how his worship would be conducted, how the tabernacle would be constructed, God was working and planning and laying the blueprints for the mansion where he would deliver his holiness to his people. So, Why this one specific command, not to build an idol, and gold was specifically mentioned, why did they break that one? Understand that all people are a product of their culture to some extent. You and I are no exceptions. Now think of the culture that Israel had been entrenched in for over 400 years. The idea of a god without a beautifully carved idol was absurd in Egypt. They had learned about true worship from the Egyptians. They would have a holy calf of gold, and they would worship him the right way with a ritual orgy at its feet. So the warning there is to beware of becoming part of the world around you. Jesus urged us to have this attitude, Be ready, dress for service, and keep your lamps burning. Be like people waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. And St. Paul instructed, Also do not continue to conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. I want you to notice this fact from that Old Testament lesson, that when Aaron made the calf, he didn't give it a new name, and he didn't name it after an Egyptian god. Instead, he said, this is your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. Our culture does the same thing to us. It celebrates Christmas and Easter, which are Christian holidays, but what's true about Santa Claus? Or the Easter Bunny. The culture around us tells us that worshiping God is good and that everyone should believe in God, but which God? And how do you worship that God? The way you want to or the way He has asked you to? That's what we face in our culture, the error we frequently will fall into because of our sinful nature. That is, each of us has an idol or several. It might be money, it might be popularity, it might be other creature comforts, but the insidious ones are the ones that call themselves by the name of the true God. When you think about God and his truth, are your pictures tainted by things that the world values? Remedy those false ideas by coming back to God's own testimony, coming back to his word. Jesus warns what we will face as those who are removed from the world and its way of thinking. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, for that very reason, the world hates you. The world thinks that your way of doing things is wrong and weird and messed up. This is the world of, dare I say it, instant gratification. Idols won't make you wait. Idols give you what you want, when you want it. But all idols are a Trojan horse, filled with the armies of Satan, packed to the brim with stinking sin and death. The true God is omniscient, knowing everything. He knows the idols that you harbor in your heart. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He's over your shoulder watching how you worship your false gods. And he is omnipotent, all powerful. He is able to destroy both idol and idol worshiper in hell. But the true God is also working. I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. Waiting in patience, that's an ongoing exercise. It takes practice because of the deliverance that is already won for you by Jesus who died instead of you. And because of his resurrection as the new Moses to lead you out of sin to the promised land, the promise is secure in Jesus. You will receive that mansion that God is making you wait for. But even while you wait, and this season of Lent is just a practice run, a scrimmage of waiting for the lifelong wait for the last day, As you wait, know that God is working not just up there on the mountain. He knows your struggles for patience. And he delivers you the means of strengthening you in word and sacrament. He is with you, at your side, while you wait, carrying you by the same gospel. He is powerful to carry you all the way and to keep his promise on the last day. And therefore see the next way that the true God is different from our idols in that he forgives for the sake of our intercessor. Idols don't forgive. And that's for two reasons. First, they don't believe in sin in the first place. And two, they don't have a savior sent by them to whom they have tied their promise. The idol built by the Israelites was obviously a hedonistic God of self-indulgence. The people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to celebrate wildly. Many things that the true God calls sin were part of the worship of this false God. The true God is a God of law. So now leave me alone, he told Moses, so that my anger can burn hot against them, so that I may consume them and make you into a great nation. Sin must be punished. And this is how we define sin. It is an act A word or a thought that God has forbidden. He defines it. The world does not define it, and neither do we. God does. He's a God of justice, and therefore sin must be condemned. Because of that justice, too, his promises must be kept. He's a God who keeps his word. This is how Moses interceded for and saved the people of Israel. His trump card argument against God in God's courtroom was the promise that God himself had made. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. So we may therefore see the picture of the greater Moses, the more perfect intercessor, Jesus In that one man who is also the true son of God, sin was punished, and God's promises were kept. He took into his body on the tree all your sins. Justice was served. The punishment was meted out. But in that act, God also had mercy on you and forgave you your sins. Who will bring an accusation against God's elect, St. Paul asks. God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died and more than that was raised to life, is the one who is at God's right hand and who is also interceding for us. Because Jesus took the punishment, your sins cannot condemn you. And now because Jesus is at the Father's right hand, he bears continually before him the scars of his passion. In his hands and feet and side, they serve as the guarantee that your sin will not be punished again. They were already punished in him. And there's more that this implies. The flesh that Jesus wears is your flesh. The flesh and blood of your human brother. This means that your humanity is brought near to God in holiness. The nearer you are to Jesus by faith, therefore, the more of his holiness you receive. God told Moses that the people corrupted themselves. They sullied the holiness that should have been theirs by turning away from God's holiness and into profanity. Holiness, you see, can only come from God in receiving what he gives. Holiness is never self-generated. Israel, rather than patiently waiting for God's holiness, quickly turned into sin. But for just such as had moved themselves outside of God's holiness, Moses interceded. They were still promised God's grace. And that is how God's holiness comes to you. Through what Jesus gives, his grace, his forgiveness, all in his word and sacraments, you are covered in his righteousness. This means your sins are forgiven, so that you are no longer corrupted. When you hear the word, when you eat and drink Jesus' body and blood, your sin is taken away, and in its place is holiness. This is godliness. That means God's strength to resist sin is given to you. God's virtue of patience as you wait is now yours. God's life that conquers even death is in you. Yes, we've committed idolatry. Whenever we lose sight of God's promises and look for something else to save us, we choose a God of our own making. But God still remains constant. Jesus intercedes, praying to the Father on our behalf, even as he is still with us, with his power and grace, so that God's promises are kept and we are given the forgiveness, life, and salvation of the true God. That is yours. Jesus Gives it to you. God looks at you with grace and love and peace. Amen. Please rise. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus into everlasting life. Amen. We now sing the offertory.